Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, last week, the Army Aviation Association of America convened in Nashville, Tennessee for uh, its annual uh, symposium. Unfortunately, we couldn't join, but our special correspondent and my very good friend, Bob Hastings, was able to attend. Bob uh, was the former VP of communications at Bell. He is an Army aviator who has been a Quad A member since 1978 without dating him at all. He is also a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. And on top of all of that, he is a retired Brigadier General uh, in the Texas Guard. Bob, thanks so very much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, and I should also note that he uh, now has his own consulting firm called Robert Hastings and Associates. Before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, so, Bob, uh, obviously, the uh, Flora decision, I want to congratulate you uh, on uh, the win. We had Ryan Anger, uh, who is leading the V280 program for Bell on the on the Air Power podcast last week. But our focus is some of the messages we heard from Army leadership at uh, Quad A. Unfortunately, we couldn't be there, and you were kind enough uh, to uh, be our sort of special correspondent there and join us today. What were some of the big messages we heard? The Chief of Staff of the United States Army, obviously, is uh, an aviator. Uh, and this was his uh, last appearance at Quad A as the Chief of Staff of the Army. What were some of the big messages leadership was de delivering at a very important time for Army aviation? Yeah, so I think uh, I think clearly the big news at the show was the selection of the future long-range assault aircraft and and its survival of the protests. So you know, kind of officially, April is the month that that program really got uh, underway. Uh, with that decision now solid, there was a lot of attention to the V-280 by the Army aviation community. Uh, soldiers were climbing over that mock-up the entire time that I was there, and it was clearly a, uh, a center of attention. In his uh, general address, uh, which kind of kicked off the entire show, the Chief of Staff General McConville, he really emphasized that the Army still plans to field both a flare and a fair, which was a big question, still remains a big question, a lot of people, as to whether that can be done. But he referred back to the early 80s when the Army fielded uh, the Blackhawk and the Apache at nearly the same time. Um, and, you know, there has been a lot of debate uh, about whether or not uh, the future armed reconnaissance aircraft is is really valuable, right? Uh, from the chief standpoint, it's uh, the manned forward edge of the manned unmanned uh, uh, both surveillance and strike complex the Army has built, obviously, as Gray Eagles uh, in the inventory. Uh, and I think he's been looking to get the Apache, which is an expensive airplane, out of the uh, scout mission uh, which uh, was was performed by the Kiowa Warrior uh, when uh, that airplane was sunset. MITRE just did a study. What's what's the case for this being a manned aircraft, given that you're also an Army aviator and have flown all of these airplanes at one point or another? Yeah, so I'll, I'll admit some prejudice up front. I was uh, I was an air cavalry pilot, commanded OH-58s in the uh, in the reconnaissance mode. I I'm a big believer in the the element of human curiosity. 
And I think that's fundamentally what was in the MITRE study is that, is that reconnaissance requires human curiosity on the battlefield. But on the other hand, I also recognize that, uh, that automation and technology and sensors can significantly improve that role. And so there's an argument both for, I believe, increased use of unmanned, uncrewed technology in the reconnaissance mode, and also an element of that human curiosity. At least right now, the MITRE study would say that the Army's still on the right path for, for this next generation to have crewed reconnaissance system. Even though uh, Jim McConville is uh, delivering that message, he is the outgoing chief of staff. Uh, Randy George, uh, the vice chief of the Army, has been tapped uh, to succeed General McConville. And there have been a lot of questions about whether or not the FARA program survives. I mean, do we have any indication? And did you pick up anything from the show floor or folks you were talking to uh, about greater clarity? Because at the and when FARA survived, there was a sense it survived because of the chief, but that it might not survive after his tenure, a program that's obviously now even more important for Sikorsky after uh, the Flaher loss. Yeah, I think clearly everyone that was there um, from the Army side, from industry, from the association, all still believe that there's a viable FARA program. Uh, both of the both of the industry uh, finalists, Bell and Sikorsky, uh, aggressively sending their message at the show that, that they're in the hunt for FARA. And, uh, and the Army is, is driving hard to get that engine there. As you know, the engine has become the pacing item for FARA. Both the prototypes, I think, are sitting in, in hangars somewhere at like 92 93% complete. I think there's a lot of anxiety about getting those first flights going because, um, you, you know, you got to almost have a flying program in order to defend it, uh, especially as, you know, budgets get tighter going to the future. But I would still say headline is there's uh, there's still a lot of, of uh, confidence in that program moving forward. Um, you were uh, in the Army when it made the transition from the H-1s uh, to uh, the Black Hawk, obviously a quantum step uh, in capability. How did, you know, and there's a lot of discussion, and we tried to discuss this a little bit with, with Ryan, even though um, I think he was a little bit constrained, but what can past programs teach us about how the V-280 will change as it goes into service with the United States Army? Yeah, so I think the, the big headline that I would go to there is, is not necessarily the H-1 to the H-60. That, that was a tremendous increase in capability for the Army. I, I did go through that transition, uh, and, and I found myself flying an aircraft that was much more capable than I had before. But I don't know that, that doctrine and tactics changed a lot because the Black Hawk flies not that much faster than the Huey did. I think with the V-280, I think the experience will be much more like the Marine Corps getting the V-22 where all of a sudden they have something that is so much different and so much more capable that it will in fact change doctrine. And I think what the Army's looking at, if you look at uh, their emphasis on the Pacific particularly, is, is those vast distances out there, giving the Army the relevance to move at the speed and the distance necessary to help the joint force be successful in that big environment. But it's not just limited to the Pacific. Everyone talks about that. Just go back to Europe and imagine uh, the United States military involved uh, in a conflict on the European uh, front where you could move men, material, resources on the battlefield at, at distances two or three, four times greater than they are today. It really changes 
the ability of a tactical maneuver on the battlefield. Uh, so it would be, uh, it, it, is a, it is a quantum uh, capability uh, change. And one of the reasons why I think the chief and the senior leadership was delivering that message of, of speed and range being so important and, and why both of the competitors put together uh, pretty incredible airplanes, albeit different ways of trying to uh, tackle that problem. Um, yeah, think, me... think about this, if I, if I could add this just for a second. Sure. So I was, a, I was a, an Army aviation commander in Europe uh, with, with the ability and speed and range that's not that different from what the Army has today. And so I thought in terms of a one over 50,000 tactical map, it pretty much was how far I could move and influence the battlefield. With V-22s and the Marine Corps, they were able to support all of Afghanistan with two bases. Uh, where I think the Army was operating in a range of eight or nine. I met a lieutenant colonel at the Singapore Air Show two years ago, lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, who had V-22s working missions everywhere from Australia to Korea to ships out at sea. And so you had a lieutenant colonel with an operational footprint that big. That's how big the Army's change is going to be once they have a tilt rotor as their future long-range assault aircraft. I, I am uh, I am stunned. I think uh, you and I uh, have talked about this over a very long period of time. When you go back uh, to General Robinson when he was chief of Army uh, Aviation, this is three decades ago. He wanted V-22s at that point for the U.S. Army in terms of the aperture uh, that it would open. And for a whole variety of reasons, the Army chose not to go in that direction until now. Uh, so it's, what's, it's really funny how long some journeys can take. Bob, I want to ask you about something uh, very sad. Uh, late last week, two Apaches uh, collided. Uh, four aviators on uh, the airplane, uh, three passed away, one uh, hospitalized, um, 14 uh, fatalities just in the span of a couple of weeks uh, involved in uh, accidents, night flying accidents, obviously a very difficult uh, business, uh, dangerous flying, especially at night. You're somebody uh, who would tell me how often you come back with branches and things uh, sticking out of the uh, airplane. General McConville putting a stand down, uh, Army Aviation stand down, understanding each accident is different. What does this mean? Um, what do you think could be causing it, um, given that the Army is going to do a great job to try to figure out what a common cause is uh, on this? What's your sense? Yeah, Bob, look, uh, stand down is a sound move uh, to allow the Army the opportunity to regroup and really take a hard look at, at what might be going on. It's, you know, it's absolutely inappropriate for you or I or anyone outside the, the situation here to try to second guess what's going on. Like you said, what we know in, a, in about four weeks, 14 uh, fatalities, a number of injuries on top of that. It does appear that uh, night flying was maybe a common element of all that. But look, the Army has among the most professional and competent aviators in the world, and, and they're flying hard and they're training hard. It is the toughest of environments. No one else other than the U.S. military, because, you know, the, the Navy and the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, they all work in really tough environments. But no one else in the world can do what our Army aviators are doing. So a stand, a stand down, reviewing the mission, taking a look at the policies, procedures, training, all of that just really makes sense because what, what we don't want is just unnecessary loss of life. Um, the important thing, though, even more than that to remember now is that it is, in fact, 14 souls lost. There are 14 grieving families, whole communities that are they're in mourning about this. And all of us need to just really keep keep all of those uh, soldiers, those that, that passed and their families and their communities in our thoughts and prayers as the Army kind of works through this over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we, we look forward to that, and our, uh, all of those families uh, are in our thoughts. 
Uh, Bob, thanks so very much again. Really appreciate it. Great to have you on. Thanks for doing advanced duty for us uh, down there at Quad A. Okay, Vago, it was my pleasure. Thanks. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us and I hope you guys had a terrific weekend. We did a rainy weekend, but it's, that's good to get things done. Uh, indeed, rainy here too, but uh, some places uh, are short of water, so that's always uh, good and uh, certainly hope that nobody's homes get, get flooded out or otherwise damaged. A very uh, interesting week last week. Obviously, uh, the group uh, reported whether it was uh, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, L3 Harris, uh, Raytheon, uh, and a lot of other defense names, as well as commercial names, uh, reported last week, Bombardier among them, and of course in Europe, as we discussed on, on yesterday's program, uh, MTU and Safran and others. Talk to us a little bit about what the key earnings takeaways were from the American group in your, in your mind. They were pretty much in line with expectations, Vago. I don't think there are any, you know, it's the first quarter um, of the year. You know, you really didn't see a change in guidance. Not that, that I would have expected that. Um, <clears throat> you know, the sales comparisons were maybe a little bit better at the margin on a, on a quarterly basis. You know, a lot of the companies who reported did show growth on a year-over-year basis. Um Although, again, they didn't change full-year guidance, which is really still relatively flat. Um, what was interesting, you know, I kind of look at this at a, at a segment level because, you know, you can talk about Boeing, but obviously commercial airplanes, I've got a, a global services business that they don't break out the defense contribution from. But there are 20 defense segments. Um, some of the companies you mentioned, I also add Textron and Oshkosh and CACI uh, to, the, to the list who reported last week. Um, most of the, the majority of that those 20 different operating units or standalone companies, um, of the 20, of those 20, 14 had down operating margin comparisons. Not big, but, you know, I, I think that's evidence maybe some of it's mixed, but some of it is also these inflation and cost pressures that that companies are dealing with, and the supply chain issues or supply network issues that um, have caused delays uh, pushing things to the right. So, um, you know, the the group. I think the other interesting thing was the way the stocks behaved. It seemed like <clears throat> there was a pop uh, on the the print of the result. And then, and then they just kind of faded during the week. And, you know, what's interesting is during the full week, um, most of the U S names, the large cap names were down, uh, you know, approximately 3% in a market that I believe was up 1%. So, you know, hard to say how much of that was really a reaction to earnings results, how much of it was a reaction to just simple rotation, um, you know, Boeing, probably had a, a bit better quarter than people had expected. So is there the typical rotation that goes on? And the other thing that I, I can't really pin yet, but I've got to believe that the debt ceiling uh, and, and kind of that drama is something that's going to be weighing on these companies as well. Um, speaking of uh, debt, well, let me let me get to uh, debt ceiling in a second and ask you a supply chain question, right? I mean, we uh, saw a big, uh, as we discussed on yesterday's program, uh, a big guided multiple launch rocket system uh, order uh, to uh, Lockheed nearly $5 uh, billion. Uh, one of the things we've seen is 
it's not that the department hasn't wanted to move more quickly on um, you know expanding production lines and and buying more of everything. It's just realizing it coming to contact with you know a decade of just or more of just in time delivery. We don't have the chips. We don't have the raw materials. And and increasingly, even at some of these factories, there's not even the right tooling uh, there. All of which is is being uh, addressed. Doug Cameron had a terrific article in the Wall Street Journal that's a nice overview of of the challenges and what everybody's been doing. From your standpoint, um, and, and this is something that I asked the group, as you know, yesterday, how are we doing? How's everybody doing on sort of safing? supply chains and the focus that we're seeing because in the near term it makes things a little bit more complicated even if it it yields long term longer term results where, where are we and do you have any historical analogs as you always have a tendency of finding that can help guide us through this well, no i mean i think a couple of points um you know it, it it's it's a problem that took a long time to get to and it's probably going to take a long time to to solve it. And I think, you know, for, first thing, you really have had a hollowing out of the smaller uh, companies that supply the defense primes. Um, so you continue to hear this came up on some of the calls, uh, uh, you know, castings, forgings, microelectronics sounded like that was getting a little bit better, but, you know, kind of the, the real dirty fingernail uh, steel toe boot type of work. Um, that is is a, a part of the economy that has really been the primary bottleneck, I think, in, in getting this up and running. And then it's just a simple, you know, we have a, a very low unemployment rate. Um, a lot of people, you know, over the last 20 years did not go into trades. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it's as you start ramping these production lines up, it's it's a it's a people problem too. And that's going to take you know, there there's some things that might be done. Um, you you could change work requirements. In other words, people don't have to have a bachelor's degree. You know, from a, from a university, uh, maybe you could relax things like you know minor um, offenses for things like marijuana use. I mean, there there are a whole range of things that <clears throat> might help loosen this up. But I think just generally, um, and it's popped up in Europe too. You know, it's it's not just the U.S. that's having this issue, but it's 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 a problem in Europe as well. As all of a sudden you see the surge in defense manufacturing needs, and um, we'll get there. You know, I I think it's just going to take you know another year or two. And and back to the operating margin observation. <laughs> you know, as people bring in, uh, as companies bring in new people to work in their plants. Uh, you know, they've got to be trained. The, the, you know, the, the new expansion usually isn't great for margins. So that's going to be another uh, pressure, I think. It's, it's not it's not that things are necessarily going to fall out of the bed. Uh, but I do think, you know, from a historic perspective, some of the worst operating performance you've seen in the in the sector has been when there's been a very rapid increase in demand. And, um, you know, that's that's when you tend to see wheels fall off. But we're working at a more stately pace, I think. Um, do you, do you um, what about buybacks, right? I mean, that's an issue that you uh, yeah. focus on uh, a little bit less activity. And if so, what's driving it? Well, it's an interesting, it's just an observation right now, Vago. But I think if I just look at the, the buybacks that were announced by the, the largest companies, you know, General Dynamics, L3 Harris, uh, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon Technologies, they totaled about $2.3 billion in the quarter. That's a pretty slow pace 
compared, you know, you have to go back to the year 2000. Uh, I'm sorry, you have to go back to 2020 to see quarters when uh, the, these companies were buying, uh, you know, lesser amounts of stock back. So um, I don't know how much of it has to do with, um, you know, this, this anticipated change. It's not an anticipated change, but how much of this has to do with the change in the progress payment rate reverting back to the pre-pandemic levels uh, for the primes? How much of it has to do with companies just starting to maybe conserve a bit of cash in anticipation of what could be a pretty gnarly summer um, if we get into uh, breaches on the X date? Um, and I also just think maybe there's a bit of conservatism going on here. Um, you know, pay down your debt if you can. Uh, you know, the broader credit crunch, you know, what does this really mean um, when you continue to see these bank failures in the United States uh, and, and, you know, the Fed tightening. So uh, I just think it's it's kind of, a, it's an observation at this point, but, uh, you know, I think, I think companies, no one said they're backing away from their share buybacks, but you have to look at this on a kind of quarter to quarter basis and see, well, are these companies really following through on what they said they were going to do? Or are there more immediate and important demands for cash. Um, let me take you to uh, the debt uh, issue. Obviously, um, concern is rising in Washington uh, that we might be um, getting closer to a debt default. Um, I, as usual in Washington, everything waits until the last minute. Uh, Republicans obviously have passed their plan uh, of a one-year uh, ceiling increase uh, along with uh, sharp uh, spending cuts, obviously, uh, the Republicans want to undo as much as, uh, you know, as much of Joe Biden's agenda as they possibly can as the presidential rate uh, race uh, kind of gets underway, uh, if you will. From your, you know, it was Wall Street that forced a resolution to this the last time around. Um, we already have committee chairmen saying that we don't expect that there will be that much more money for defense. And indeed, if you default the United States, what we spend on defense is is, is going to be I don't want to say immaterial, but markedly diminished, uh, given the the kind of global impact that would have. How are you gaming this at this point? Right, uh, it's it's good that we've got a negotiating process of sorts uh, underway, but we also know that this only works if the hostage is valuable, as our mutual friend Todd Harrison would say. Todd's going to join us on the program tomorrow. What's your sense? on where we are and where we're going now. I'm more concerned about it. And back to earnings uh, calls, Vago, it it really, it amazed me that how little discussion there was on this during the conference calls. Um, management seemed content to just say, oh, here's the president's budget submission, you know, with a 3% or so growth in FY24 uh, DOD top line. But uh, there was only one call. It was a CACI call where where the issue was even discussed. And so management's kind of avoided it in their opening uh, statements. And sell-side analysts just weren't asking about it. So I find that odd and frankly, a little alarming. Um, if there's that much complacency about this in, in the investment community, I have to believe, and I know uh, Chris Kubasic, uh, L3 Harris's CEO was interviewed on CNBC the day that they released earnings and the reporter at least asked Chris, you know, what do you guys think about this? And I think he said what what probably most managements 
should say or what what they can only say at this point, which is, you know, we're monitoring this very closely. And, you know, but back to the share buyback uh, question, you know, how, there, there are a whole range of, of behavioral impacts it could have, obviously, on how companies use cash, but also, you know, how does DOD let contracts? You know, what, what happens if we really are in a full year CR for the FY24 budget and you don't get these these uh, these new starts or, or rate increases? Um, I think, you know, more broadly, um, the one thing that I look at now, and, you know, it's just kind of daily, it's on my Bloomberg screen is a, a credit default swap on U.S. sovereign debt. Uh, that has gone from about 15, 16 basis points in at the beginning of 2023. Um, on Friday, uh, it was quoted at 176, which basically means it's about $17,000 to, in effect, buy insurance on a million dollars of sovereign of U.S. sovereign debt <clears throat> to avoid default. Um, it, you know, if that debt is not paid back or delayed or whatever. So I just find it, um, it it's starting to creep up in, in the eyes of the market. I do think, you know, to your point, um, I, I think the market could be a forcing function here, but I, I think we're going to, you know, we're, we may go right over the cliff, not just up to the edge of the cliff uh, for that forcing function to really happen. And, and to your point, you know, yeah, there's a Republican plan out, but that Republican plan just has a top line discretionary number with no indication of how that's going to be allocated between defense and non-defense. And I keep, I believe strongly that uh, later this month, um, or it may shift until early uh, June, the really interesting thing is going to be when House Republican leadership goes to mark up the FY24 budget. Um, because as Michael Hershen has talked about on your show on Friday, you know, there's still talk about adding to defense, but what does that mean for the rest of the, uh, the the discretionary part of the budget? And I think when people really start to see what these cuts are, uh, it, I'm presuming that the House does mark to the top line number that was in the uh, in, in the House GOP plan, I, I think it's going to be shocking. And, and that's going to be a real battle that uh, may, may throw this whole thing in a high gear. Everybody says that a debt default would be bad, but there are very few people who explain what that really means. Um, you know, we just saw downgrade uh, Fitch downgraded uh, France, yep. um, which is not good. I mean, my fear is that all the nations that need to be doing more to support Ukraine and stand up to China are all going to get themselves into different sorts of financial problems that are going to preclude uh, their ability to might to spend the kind of money that they need to, and indeed might telegraph weakness. What does an American debt default mean, Byron? What Byron, does it look Byron. like, and how do people have to visualize it? Because everybody's like, it's a nightmare scenario without anybody really being yeah. you know, specific on what that looks like. I don't know what the, what, what, I can't map out what will happen to interest rates, but come on, you know, if, if <laughs> look at, look at, uh, we're not going to go to credit card rates, but you know, the, the, if you miss credit card payments and start having to pay the interest rates of Visa or MasterCard demand, um, it's pretty hairy. And, you know, I, I think the bottom line, the cost for the U S to borrow is going to be 
greater than it is today uh, with the credit rating that has been accorded. And, and I think because, you know, it's it's really some of the best uh, credit in the world right now. Um, so if you default on that and people feel like, well, I'm not going to get my interest or my principal back when I expect to, they're going to demand a higher interest rate. And what that just means, you know, the, the government funding is going to be more expensive. And unless you do something like raise taxes to help offset that, uh, which again, seems to be completely off the table as, as part of any of these debt negotiations, um, it, it's going to it's going to bear further on on government spending, including defense. And I, I I go back to the Jake Sullivan speech that was made at Brookings last week, where, and I was at an event, a separate event in New York City where this came up about this kind of whole of government approach to competing with China. You know, if, if people think that the defense budgets are the only way to do this, um, you know, kind of back to where we started this conversation on supply chain, you know, you have to have a, a healthy, educated, trained workforce. Um, you have to have uh, domestic manufacturing technology, you know, things like the CHIPS Act, you know, to, to, to help secure some of these supply sources. So the idea that it's just the defense budget that, that provides national security is, is really, I, I think, extremely misguided and doesn't appreciate what some of the broader impact of these cuts could have on, on national security. And uh, Byron, let's take a look at the week ahead. Uh, Senate uh, is uh, in town. House is uh, again, uh, out of town, walk us through what folks should be paying attention to this week. Sure. Senate Armed Services has the Air Force um, oversight hearing on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, they have the worldwide threats with the head of DNI and DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Um, and, uh, and there's also, I believe, a, a Senate Appropriations Defense Subcommittee on the Army request. Um, there are a couple of, of think tank events. I think uh, CSIS is doing one on Japanese security, which looks kind of interesting. And then, you know, back to the supply chain issue, um, George Mason University is having an event on uh, kind of missiles, munitions, and the defense industrial base with people from industry and from the department to talk about this. So um, you're right, relatively quiet, but sometimes those are, those are famous last words. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's it's quiet, too quiet. Um, hopefully it's quiet and folks are, are working uh, to try to do the right thing. Uh, Byron, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago.